Our second message this afternoon is from Mr. Matt Steele. It is entitled, Worthy. Good afternoon. You know, I am still getting used to uh, speaking at this slot um, in services. I'm sitting back there thinking, how many of my scriptures is Curtis going to steal? <laughs> so I have a new appreciation for the gentlemen that have always done this. Uh, they're probably used to it by now. But I do think that uh, what, what Curtis has said, obviously focusing toward Passover, hopefully works very well with what I feel I've been given today to talk about. You know, when we come to Passover, when we come to that evening, that service, I don't know if you're like me, but I kind of get stuck on a certain verse, or a certain few verses. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 27. The Apostle Paul gives us this charge. He says, Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Does that give you pause? Always gives me pause. And, and when that happens, when that comes up in, in, in our scripture readings, I, I just kind of want to say, hold on a second, let me, let me have some extra time to think about this. Let me evaluate myself just a little bit more. I want to stop, slow down, take some extra time. Am I really worthy to take of this bread, to take of this wine, the symbols of the body and the blood of our Savior? Am I right with God? Do I have a right heart? Do I have a clear conscience? Am I worthy? Am I participating in this sacred ritual, this beautiful imagery and renewal, as Curtis mentioned? Am I participating in a worthy manner? Because it seems that no matter how much I consider this passage ahead of time and prepare ahead of time, how much I pray about it, talk about it, it still causes me this pause. I still struggle. I come up short. I take an accounting, right? Over here I've got a ledger. And I place all my character flaws. And I imagine every single one of them having a, a, a rating system. Maybe one of these days I'll actually do a real rating system. And when I total it up, it's still in the red. After all these years, after I don't know how many years, 20 plus years, longer of keeping this, practicing this, rehearsing this, living over again this beautiful time, this institution that Jesus gave us, this body, this bread, this wine, this blood, I still come up short. 
I'm not worthy to eat the body and drink the blood of the Messiah. There is nothing I can do to be worthy. That's what I feel about it. That's my mindset. I fall short. Perhaps you feel the same way. Perhaps you have that same struggle. Paul says it this way in Romans chapter 20, uh, Romans 7, chapter, uh, verse 24. He says, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of sin and death? I'm just trapped. Who can save me? Who can make me worthy to eat of these symbols? Perhaps you don't feel this way. Perhaps after a long period of, of walking in this way and, and obeying the commandments of God, perhaps you feel that you've attained a certain stature, sufficient to qualify you with, without too much concern. Perhaps your Christian walk, you feel, is free enough, whatever enough is, from sin, to be worthy to qualify. There are some folks in the world, we can read about some of them in the Bible, but there are folk, folks now around in this world that feel that they are qualified by whatever means, whatever benchmark that they feel that they have obtained, whatever religious practice maybe they have obtained, maybe some ritual that they've been through that absolves them of sin. We know of all kinds of organizations that claim to do that. There are such people, and there certainly have been such people. And I want to take a look at a person who maybe was in this, in this category. And he came and he talked to Jesus one day, and he was a passionate man, clearly. He had a purpose, and he, he felt like, from reading the scriptures, that he maybe was about there, qualified enough. We find this man in Mark chapter 10 and verse 17. It's a familiar story. Now as he, Jesus, it says, was going out on the road, one came running and knelt before him. <clears throat> knelt before him, pious so much. I mean... I don't get a sense of arrogance necessarily, but he knelt before Jesus as the, as the teacher. And he said, good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good, but, but one, that is God. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. And he answered and said to him, Teacher, all of these things I have kept from my youth. Wow. That's pretty, that's pretty bold, isn't it? A lot of people I know would say, All these things I've tried to keep from my youth. But he just said, No, I've kept these. I'm, I'm pretty, pretty sure about that. Jesus, looking at him, loved him. He had compassion on him. He loved him. And he said, one thing you lack, 
Go your way, sell whatever you have, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, take up the cross, and follow me. But he was sad at this word. He went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And we, you know, we've looked at this story, we've looked at all kinds of different facets of this story, but in the light of being prepared for Passover, for the bread and the wine, here we had a young man who thought, who believed that he had done maybe enough, maybe that he was close to it, at least. <clears throat> I'm, I'm meeting all the criteria. I'm just going to check with this guy if there's one last thing I need to do. Jesus said, keep the commandments of God. You know, it's interesting, isn't it, that Jesus did not look into this young man's heart <clears throat> and debate with him. He could have, right? He knew what the Pharisees, the scribes, were saying in their minds, quietly in the corner. He could hear that. He knew what, what they were saying about Jesus at different times. So Jesus could have looked into this man's heart and said, really? I know for a fact that yesterday you kind of told a lie. Or this morning you were kind of, um, well, you were lusting after that woman in the marketplace. But he didn't call him out, did he? I find it fascinating on so many levels that Jesus said, keep the commandments. Keep the commandments. And he named the commandments. But then he came to that point when Jesus said, sell all your possessions, give them to the poor. He couldn't do it. And because of it, he was failing to keep the commandments. Do you realize that? Which commandment do you think that he failed to keep? Anybody? Yeah, maybe he was coveting. Any other suggestions? Now you're going down the right track. Did you say, Trevor? First, first the first commandment. First commandment. Turn, if you would, to Mark chapter 12, verse 28. The first commandment. Then one of the scribes came, having heard... Uh, having heard them reasoning together, perceiving that he had answered them well, asked him, asked Jesus, which is the first commandment of all? And Jesus said, the first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. This is the first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. God first. Everything else is after that. And Jesus even tells us what's second. This young man failed to understand the first 
commandment, after keeping all the commandments from his youth, he completely missed the keeping of the first commandment, the greatest commandment. He failed to follow that commandment, failed to be worthy for our purposes today of the bread and the wine. He could not put God first. He could not love the Lord with all his heart, with all his mind. He still reserved a portion of his love for his possessions. He couldn't give those up. Not even as a sacrifice. Not even as an offering. And he was being given an opportunity. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but he was given an opportunity to leave a failed way of life, to leave a failed religion and follow the Messiah. And more than that, who knows where that following would have led him. We might have had a book written by him in the New Testament. What an opportunity he turned down because he could not keep the first commandment. He was giving that opportunity, but he loved his possessions. But there's also another failure, something that Jesus didn't point out, and yet it's something that should have jumped out to us. All the times that we've looked at this, and maybe you've seen it, I've just never really saw it before. It didn't jump out to me until today. I was going over my notes. What did the young man ask? Specifically, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? As Curtis uh, mentioned earlier, uh, quoting from James, this man asked amiss. He asked the wrong question. What must I do to inherit eternal life. And for this reason, you see the word inherit or inheritance implies that there is some qualification that can be obtained. That maybe you have a right to it by birth or some other criteria. And also that he thought there was something he could do to obtain eternal life. Again, perhaps this young man thought he was on the path of obedience. And this is how you obtain the righteousness of God. This is how you inherit eternal life. Either way, we don't inherit eternal life. Not in the sense that this young man mentioned. Not in the way that he thought you would. Paul makes this very clear in Romans chapter 6, verse 22. But now, having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end, everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. The gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. This young man was being invited by Jesus to participate 
in something that he could not qualify for, that he could not inherit for on his own. It was a gift. But perhaps some still feel that they can keep the laws of God perfectly. Perhaps they are worthy through their own righteous acts to take the symbols of life, the bread and the wine. That they have a right to it because of what they've done. Again, Jesus' own words should be a guide for our thoughts and our actions. In answering the young rich man, Jesus said in Mark chapter 10 and verse 18, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one that is God. You know, the other night at, at practice, I asked the worship team, a few of the folks gathered up here, I asked them a question. What did they make of this being worthy to, to drink of that wine and to eat of that bread? We've got several different answers. I won't, I won't call out names or anything. Well, I'll call out Lucille's name, sorry. <laughs> but she reminded us. She reminded us of what it says in Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6. But we all are like an unclean thing, and all our righteousness is like filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, have taken us away. So... Do any of us still feel worthy to take of the bread and to drink of that cup? Of ourselves, are we worthy? That we've done enough. That we've qualified. I've been to 35 Feast of Tabernacles, so that qualifies me. Or, I'm not like those other people over there. I'm poking fun, but I don't think we feel that way, do we? If someone did feel worthy, then they are almost certainly not worthy. Strange irony. For in a certain sense, we are all guilty of the body and the blood of Jesus. If it was not for me and my sin, if it was not for you and your sin, he would not have had to die. So in a certain sense, Paul's caught us in a trap. We are not worthy. We are already guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord, aren't we? It's ironic. It is our sin that it is, makes us unqualified to receive this new covenant covering. And yet, it is for that sin and because of our sin, that we have been offered it. I rem I'm reminded this, this kind of falls into a statement that those that were calling for Jesus' crucifixion said. You remember this in Matthew chapter 27, verse 24 and 25. You know, Pilate is there. He's like, hey, I kind of want to let Jesus go. Are you guys okay with that? Well, they were not okay with that. When Pilate saw that he could not prevail at all, but rather 
that a tumult was rising, he took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this person. You see to it. He was not innocent of the blood of this person. He wasn't innocent. He could wash his hands all day long. He had the authority. He had the power. And once more, we know from the scriptures, he's a human being. And Jesus came to save him and die for his sins. So whether he understood it or not, he was, of course, guilty of this man's death, this righteous man's death. And then beyond that, it's almost as though Pilate is a symbol for the Gentile world. Have you noticed that? Because, I mean, things could have played out one way or the other where just the Jews killed Jesus, right? After all, they had tried to do that to others and probably had done that to others. The woman that they tried to stone at Jesus' feet. Uh, if you're not supposed to be killing anybody because you don't have the authority to do so, what's going on here? So you could have just had a rabble. You could have just had a lynching, right? A big crowd that just killed Jesus. But it's interesting that God orchestrated things so that the Gentile leadership and the Jewish or Israelite leadership combined representing the world killed Jesus. It's fascinating. So he was not innocent of the blood of Jesus. And then, of course, in verse 25, and all the people answered Pilate and said, his blood be on us and on our children. And by saying this, they meant, hey, if there's any retribution for this, if there's any Anyone that has to answer for this decision, we'll take it. It's on us. You won't get in trouble for it, Pilate. We'll take this. And how kind of them. We'll also stick this guilt on our children as well. What kind of frenzy was this crowd in? They really wanted this man dead. One that never had hurt any one of them. But of course, what they meant for evil, God meant for good. Because we know, we can see through the vision of the apostles, their writings, and through the understanding that we gain from the New Testament, how Christ's blood will cover them and their children. They will have the blood of Jesus on them. The Jewish people, with all the rest of Israel, will one day accept and recognize that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus, Messiah. That he did die for them. That his blood covers them and their children, just as they said it would. Paul talks about this in Romans, toward the end of his treatise on the fate of Israel. And he's just longing for Israel to be reconciled with God. And in, ver in chapter 11, verse 25, he says, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, 
lest you should be wise in your own opinion. The blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away on godliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. But that's not yet come to pass. That hasn't happened yet. Today, the Jewish people, the Israelite people, they have not accepted Jesus as their Messiah. And when you think about it, for 2,000 years now, there has been no blood. There has been no sacrifice. There has been no means by which to obtain the remission of sins. Because that physical system stopped. There is no place to spread the blood. There is no Passover covering. And even if they could restore the temple, the altar, the holiest place, even if they could do this, there is no Solomon to call that prayer forth and ask God to dwell in that new house. And the reason being is because God has a new house. Through Christ Jesus, he dwells in us. We are the tabernacle. We are the dwelling place. We are made righteous by Jesus the Messiah. As we will read in a few more days, Jesus said this in John chapter 14, verse 23. If a man love me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him, and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. So in a few short verses, we have gone from being unworthy of the body and the blood of our Savior to now being the house, the tabernacle of God. It's simple. And yet, it's so hard for us to accept. It's so hard for us to accept as we read those scriptures and we wonder, am I worthy? And we get back into that trap again. Jesus Christ has made us worthy. We are worthy through him to take of that blood and that body of his. We are reminded that we are made worthy by him. Or as Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21, for he, God, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Not that we might have righteousness, or that we may be or do righteous acts, but that we become righteousness fully through us, through Christ. He makes us worthy. But that's not the whole story, right? It was not the whole story for the Corinthians. Because back in Paul's first letter to them and in chapter 11, there's another truth, another instruction 
that Paul was giving them and that we really should take into account as we prepare for Passover. Another instruction that we should remember when we examine ourselves prior to eating of the bread and the wine. So let's take a look at that. I'm going to go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and start in verse 17. He says, Now in giving these instructions, I do not praise you, since you come together not for the better, but for the worse. What kind of Passover were these guys having? For first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you, and in part I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, that those who are approved might be reconciled, uh, recognized among you. Therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. So the Corinthians, they had real problems. I mean, this was the... Apart from maybe atonement, this is the most sacred time of the year. And they couldn't come together in unity. They had divisions. They had factions. They had leaders trying to go in opposite directions. They were a mess. And Paul is chastising them for it. He's calling them out. And these issues that he's highlighting is ultimately the context, the real context of why he asks them to examine themselves, to, be, to see if they are worthy of the body and the blood of Jesus. He continues, For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others, and one is hungry and the other is drunk. What, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing. What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. So these Corinthians were all over the place. Some hungry, some drunk and gluttonous and who knows what. Some maybe treating this as a party, as a, you know, it's a potluck. Bring your favorite wine. And others may be coming with a solemn mindset and sitting there waiting for all these guys to be finished eating. Or maybe some were, trying, were confused. Hey, this is Passover, right? We're doing the normal Passover thing. But yet the way that Paul is talking about it, he's acting like they should have known better. Right? How could he chastise them? They didn't know that there was a better way. What is going on here? Well, it might not seem connected, but remember back when we, we looked at the rich man. The rich young man wanting that eternal life. And that he failed to keep the first commandment, which was to put God first. Well, he also failed to do something else. The same failure that the Corinthians, the Corinthians were, were making right here. Jesus said, sell all that you have and give to the poor. So he didn't do that, did he? 
He could not keep which commandment? The second of the greatest commandments. To love your neighbor as yourself. He couldn't take all of his possessions and give it to the poor. His neighbor. In fact, he was in the end missing the whole point of the commandments for all of his trying. And I think this is central to the church in Corinth. This was the cause of their problem. Paul's saying you are not taking care of one another. You're not putting one another first. You're not recognizing the needs of those that are in your own congregation. One of you over here is eating and getting drunk and the other is starving. What kind of church are you guys? He was scathing. And on top of this, this is not the Passover. This is not the Passover of the Jews. This is a new thing. And he's very clear about that. Because he continues on, he says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do, as often as you drink it, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. So this is the context. This disunity, this broken church relationship, is the context in which Paul is asking the Corinthians to examine themselves, to see if they are worthy to participate in this covenant of remembrance, this bread and this wine. They were not respecting one another. They were not taking care of one another. He continues, Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. Okay. So being worthy in this context. Well, we, we've seen that we, we need to have respect for the symbols. We need to have respect for the bread and the wine. Don't dilute that with another meal. This is a very specific thing that Paul is saying you are come together to do. This is not the Passover that you've maybe done in your Jewish religious upbringing. This is a separate, separate thing altogether. They just, some of them maybe weren't getting it. But on top of that, there's something else in here that I still didn't get till today. Now maybe you guys have seen this and you're like, Matt, you're an idiot. But in all my years of reading this, I just now realized that there's more here. So we have the context. We have the background of why Paul was saying these things. And then he says, let a man examine himself, 
And so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment unto himself, not discerning, not comprehending, not understanding, not realizing the Lord's body. But wait. We got that, right? The bread is the Lord's body, right? What are you talking about, Paul? We've got that. We understand it. And Paul says, no, Matt, you really don't. You missed it. Because he's talking about two bodies. Same body, but two bodies. Two symbols. Who are we? We are the church. We are the what? The body. It's like, oh, that's what he meant. This makes a lot more sense now. They were not discerning the Lord's body. They were not looking at one another and saying, we are the body. We are the body of Christ. Paul was excellent in his teaching. And he was trying to get them to understand the old ways have been replaced. But you are the body of Christ. And that should be primary after following God in our preparation for Passover. Paul later explains it in a different way to the Corinthians in chapter 12, 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 12, he says, For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit we are all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink of that one spirit. For in fact, the body is not one member, but many are made up together in the body. He also says it in Romans chapter 12 and verse 3. For I say, through the grace of God given to me to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought, but to think soberly, as God has dealt with each one a measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we being many, are one body in Christ, individually members of one another. One body. And the Corinthians were unworthy to participate in the bread and the wine because they were not discerning the body themselves. They were not taking care of the body of Jesus. Turning back to Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 30. It says, For this reason many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. That always used to confuse me too. Because if it was just the case that they weren't respectful of the symbols, they weren't respectful of the, the, the bread and the wine, was this kind of like a curse? Right? That they were made sick? 
Or was it because they weren't taking care of one another that they were made sick? What's one of the instructions we're given? To pray for one another. To use that spiritual power to support one another in our difficulties. We did that today. We did that. We prayed for those that are sick. For those that have challenges. We interceded. The righteous prayer avails much, doesn't it? For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord, that we may not be condemned with the world. Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. Wait for each other. For if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, lest you come together for judgment. And the rest I will set in order when I come. So when we come to our Passover service, our remembrance, our reaffirming of our covenant, the new covenant in Jesus' blood, how should we examine ourselves? How should we examine ourselves? What benchmark should we use? We already know and should accept that we are not worthy of ourselves, that it is Christ in us that has changed us into his righteousness. And then, now we have discerned that the body that we need to be concerned about is each one of us. Each one of us. Can we come to that Passover evening and participate and eat of the bread and the wine when there is division, when there is bitterness or anger, when there's hurt feelings, when there's sin amongst us. I don't know what they may be, and I'm not saying there's a problem, but we should all discern the Lord's body and come prepared, come with mended relationships, together, waiting for one another? Have we treated one another with kindness? Have we shared the love of Christ with one another? Have we forgiven one another of those hurts and those wounds that inevitably come because people bump into people? Have we forgiven one another? Let's wait for one another. Let's gather here on Thursday with grateful hearts for one another grateful that we are here together as the body participating in that just beautiful renewal strengthening one another preparing for the remainder of the year that we have ahead of us Jesus our Redeemer, our Messiah has made us worthy he who knew no sin has turned us into his righteousness and has turned us into his body. In closing, I would like to ask the worship team to join me in a special music selection that goes with this message today. It's called Jesus Messiah.
volunteers for tomorrow please join if you can okay please rise for our final song it is how great thou art is that right how great is our God and a little bit of how great thou art and then afterwards Mr. David Hope will come forward for our closing prayer
Oh